What you are listening to is just one part of a series created for the review of AP European history. If you're a student reviewing for your class or the AP exam, I suggest that you take notes. Perhaps you're a history buff and enjoy the subject matter. Either way, welcome and enjoy. In the 14th century, a Sienese shoemaker and tax collector named Agnolo del Tura de Grasso married a higher-class woman by the name of Nicoluccia. Agnolo was a man of great determination, despite his lower-class status. And throughout his marriage with Nicoluccia, Agnolo would always remind her about the great sacrifice that she had made to her own social status by marrying a man of the lower class. Agnolo and his wife Nicoluccia would go on to have a large family of their own, no less than five children. And then in 1348... Hell was unleashed on Agnolo and his hometown of Siena. It was in that year that the plague struck. Agnolo chronicled what he and others witnessed, the toll of the plague, as it marched and left death and ruin in its path. In the Black Death, a turning point in history, editor William Boski recounts the words of Agnolo. Quote, The mortality began in Siena in May, it was a cruel and horrible thing, and I do not know where to begin to tell of the cruelty in the pitless ways. It seemed to almost everyone that one became stupefied by seeing the pain, and it is impossible for the human tongue to recount the awful thing. Indeed, one who did not see such horribleness can be called blessed, and the victims died almost immediately. They would swell beneath their armpits and in their groins and fall over dead while talking. Father abandoned child, wife husband, one brother another. For this illness seemed to strike through the breath and sight, and so they died, and none could be found to bury the dead for money or friendship. Members of a household brought their dead to a ditch as best they could, without priest, without divine offices, nor did the death bell sound, and in many places in Siena, great pits were dug and piled deep with the multitude of dead. And they died by the hundreds both day and night, and all were thrown in those ditches and covered over with earth. And as soon as those ditches were filled, more were dug. And I... Agnolo di Tura, called the fat, buried my five children with my own hands. And there were also those who were so sparsely covered with earth that the dogs dragged them forth and devoured many bodies throughout the city. There was no one who wept for the dead. All awaited death, and so many died that all believed it was the end of the world. End quote. Agnolo goes on to reveal the immense death by the tens of thousands of people who lost their lives in Siena. But he also reveals not just the cruelty of the plague, but he reveals the consequence thereof in the year where the plague lessened to the year completely after the plague. He goes on to say, quote, The city of Siena seemed almost uninhabited, for almost no one was found in the city. And then, when the pestilence abated, all who survived gave themselves over to pleasures, monks, 
priests, nuns, and laymen and women all enjoyed themselves, and none worried about spending and gambling, and everyone thought himself rich because he had escaped and regained the world, and no one knew how to allow himself to do nothing. 1349. After the great pestilence of the past year, each person lived according to his own caprice, and everyone tended to seek pleasure in eating and drinking, hunting, catching birds, and gaming. End quote. What's fascinating to see in Agnolo Vitura's quote is not only what the plague brought as far as the death and destruction as it rampaged its way through Europe, but that second half also gives us an indication of what's to come in the future, maybe looking at it potentially in the future as a contextual look through the Renaissance and how Renaissance Italy, maybe even Renaissance Europe, altered its ways because of the pestilence of the Black Death. Certainly, death is on your doorstep, and you now have a choice. It's either life or death. And perhaps through, maybe at the time, something miraculous took place and you were able to survive. What does life now mean to you? As you've seen upwards of one-third of your European brothers and sisters and children decimated in front of you. Life probably looks a lot better to be living than to be dead. And so definitely that last part, talking about the priests and the nuns and everyone, even the lay men and women, meaning regular men and women, church-going men and women, everyone enjoyed life. Everybody took a moment to enjoy the living, enjoy the now, instead of being worried about what was to come. You just escaped death. There's no need to worry about what's coming. Perhaps maybe in the future when the bell is tolled for you. In this section, in this podcast, we're going to be looking at four major questions. First and foremost, what was the Black Death? Second, what caused this plague? Third, what happened during this time of crisis? And then last, what were the social and economic consequences of the Black Death? So first and foremost, what was the Black Death? The Black Death was an epidemic of the bubonic plague that devastated Europe from 1347 to about 1351, maybe even 1353, given certain areas of north and eastern parts of Europe. The plague would go on to kill about one-third, I've seen reports of one-third, maybe even a quarter, of the population of Europe, and it is thought to have killed anywhere between 75 to 200 million people over the three continents of Europe, Asia, and Africa. What caused this plague? The plague, also known as Yersinia pestis, originated in China about 2,000 years ago. And although there are some historians who say China proper is not the best location, maybe Central Asia could be uh, a better location to say that's where the plague originated, regardless of what location it came from, It was the fleas that carried the actual bubonic plague, and they carried the bubonic plague while they were on their host, the eastern black rats. And this rat oftentimes was found along trading routes, uh, on trading ships, wherever there were humans, and humans depositing their waste, food, trash, oftentimes you're going to have rats. And it was those rats uh, inhabiting those locations where the humans were getting on their trade ships along those trade routes that would eventually bring the flea within a certain radius of human beings that eventually the flea can jump off of the rat and attach itself 
to a human, and there you have a new host. And that transmission happened three ways. So you got the bubonic plague in one of three ways. One, you actually got bit by the flea that was on the rat, and there you have it. You got the bubonic plague. The second way was mnemonic. Mnemonic meaning transferred through the air from person to person. So if somebody is sick, somebody has the, the black death and they are coughing, the mucus, the phlegm, the spittle that they are pushing out into the air through their cough is eventually inhaled by someone else. And that other person ends up getting the bubonic plague. And that was fatal from 95 to 100%. Then the last one is septicemic, meaning that the bacteria itself, when the flea would bite you, that the bacteria would enter into the bloodstream. That would lead to a rash and death within a day or even hours. So reflecting back on Agnolo di Tura, talking about how you would have the bulbas, these uh, round uh, welts that would start to develop in circles on your groins or underneath your armpits. And in his case, talking about how people would die in the midst of simply talking. They would fall over and die. Septicemic being the most fatal. For the case of Europe, the plague arrived in Europe in 1347 when Genovese sailors ended up catching the disease at Kaifa. They arrived in Sicily in that year, and from there it eventually spread north, and it came and went over the years. This is not a plague that is going to stay just until 1353, and all of a sudden it disappears. Anytime you're going to have war, anytime you're going to have mass social tragedy, for example, it will come back during the Thirty Years' War. Um, anytime you're going to have difficulty with, with food or social dilemmas, the plague is going to come back. And it's still even in existence today. Um, I believe it's anywhere between 1,000 and 3,000 people around the world still get the plague. The only difference between the plague then and now is that now you have vaccines that can help you and assist you in helping you survive. Now, what took place in Europe during the time period of the bubonic plague and the Black Death? Well, one of the things we want to look at are causes and potential treatments. Um, something to note was that European medicine at the time, medieval medicine, was at a complete loss and had no way to explain what the cause was and really grasping at straws on trying to figure out on what a possible treatment for the plague would be. Um, some of these uh, outlandish claims were that Earthquakes were releasing poisonous fumes as the earth would uh, open up, poisonous fumes would be released. And that was what you were getting by getting bubonic plague was breathing in these fumes. Others believed that it was a change of the earth's temperature that led to winds from the south to carry the plague north. Um, some people believed that it was foul odors, that if you smelled something awful, oftentimes the bulba, the actual boils or the uh, raised portions and the groin and underneath the armpits that were starting to swell, these would pop and you'd have a pus that smelled horrendous. And so people thought, of course, it was the bad smells coming out of the body. So they would ask you to walk around with potpourri or hold flowers to your noses and only good smells could help you mask the bad odors that were causing this disease. And what once again, we're looking at here is a complete loss on trying to figure out cause and potential um, treatment of the plague. And one of the sources that really lends well to this is a source that was in October of 1348, where physicians at the University of Paris issued what is known as the Report of the Paris Medical Faculty. Uh, in this report, physicians are attempting to describe the cause of the bubonic plague. They're also trying to provide 
to the best of their assumptions on how to avoid contracting the plague. Quote, we, the members of the College of Physicians of Paris, intend to make known the causes of this plague. We declare as follows. It is known that in India, in the area of the Great Sea, the constellations which combated the rays of the sun exerted their power especially against the sea, and the waters of the oceans arose in the form of a vapor. The waters were in some parts so corrupted that the fish died. This vapor spread itself through the air in many places on earth, on all the islands and adjoining countries to which the corrupted sea winds extends. If the inhabitants of those parts do not take the following advice, we announce to them inevitable death, except if the grace of Christ preserves their lives. Every one of you should protect himself from the air. Wormwood and chamomile should be burnt in great quantity in the marketplace and in the houses. Cold, moist, watery food is in general harmful. Going out at night, even until three o'clock in the morning, is dangerous on account of the dew. Fasting is injurious and is so, and so is anxiety of mind, anger, and immoderate drinking and bathing. Everyone should remember this but especially those who reside on the coast or upon an island and to which the poisonous winds have penetrated, end quote. Interesting to note that here we are talking about learned individuals of the University of Paris, and here they are trying to give some sort of credence on what the plague is, where it came from, as well as how not to contract the plague. They're talking about vapors, vapors coming up from constellations that were hitting water areas around India, that vapor came up and that is the cause of the plague. Um, not only that, but they're also trying to say that if that is the vapor being the cause, that you don't want to stay out too late at night. You don't want to stay out to where the vapor becomes due in the morning and you might inhale that or breathe that in or be around it and that might kill you. That you shouldn't be too anxious, you shouldn't be too angry, and that you should have moderate, uh, moderate amount of fasting. I don't know how you can be not so anxious when a third of your population is dying in front of you. But once again, this goes to tell us that there is a complete lack of medical knowledge of the time period, and people are in extreme terror. They don't know where to turn, so they're trying to grasp at straws and trying to figure out the causes and ways to prevent this. Some people believe that this was actually a deistic punishment. This was the wrath of God, that people in society had been way too sinful, that they had been corrupt, and this was God's way of kind of dishing out the punishments. Now, and this is not only seen in Europe, but this is also seen in the Middle East. Remember that this is a plague that ravaged Asia, Europe, and Africa, upwards of 200 million people. And so we have a, an account that comes from a Syrian historian, Alwardi, and he attested his view of being a godly punishment. Um, Alwardi was living in Aleppo when the plague struck in 1349, claiming about a thousand souls a day. In his essay on the report of the pestilence, there's really no doubt in the mind of Alwardi that God's final judgment is being passed upon the corrupt members of society. Quote, the plague began in the land of darkness. China was not preserved from it. The plague infected the Indians of India, the Sin, the Persians, and the Crimea. The plague destroyed mankind in Cairo. It stilled all movement in Alexandria. Then the plague turned to Upper Egypt. The plague attacked Giza. It trapped Sidon and Beirut. Next, it directed its shooting arrows to Damascus. There, the plague sat like a lion on a throne and swayed with power, killing daily 1,000 or more and destroying the population. Oh God, it is acting on your command. Lift this from us. It happens where you wish. 
keep the plague from us. The plague caused the people of Aleppo the same disturbance. Oh, if you could see the nobles of Aleppo studying their books of medicine. They followed its remedies by eating dried and sour food. The boobles, which disturb men's lives, are smeared with Armenian clay. Each man treated their health to make life more comfortable. They perfumed their homes with camphor, flowers, and sandal. They wore ruby rings and put onions, vinegar, and sardines together with the daily meal. We ask God's forgiveness for our bad souls. The plague is surely part of his punishment. Some said, the errors corruption kills. I said, the love of corruption kills. End quote. Awardi indeed is trying to say through his words that it is truly the punishment of God, that God is commanding the plague, and that he's issuing punishments left and right for all those people that are incorrupt. At the very end, it says, some said to him that it's the air's corruption that kills, that it's in the air. It's not God, it's in the air. And in return to that, Awardi says, I said the love of corruption kills. So those members of society that are corrupt, the ones that are the sinful, this is God's punishment upon them. And it is only in the hands of God, potentially, that they could be delivered from this madness. In Europe, even looking at this, I mean, looking at Elwardi's words, even kind of mimicking the same view of the physicians of Paris, the physicians of Paris not only telling individuals that it's the vapor, that there's a cause, but also what to do to remedy, uh, remedy uh, the plague. Elwardi's doing the same thing here. He's talking about how the people of Aleppo were taking Armenian clay and actually putting it on top of the uh, boobles, the actual welts that are developing under the armpits and in the, uh, the groin area uh, for comfort, that they're perfuming their homes against the smell, uh, spell, uh, smells, that they're putting vinegar and onions and sardines together in daily meals. They're attempting to do something, uh, you know, not medical, not medical scientific knowledge, but something, anything to try to defeat the plague and try to come up with remedies that would best help them. So both in Europe and here in the Middle East, there is definitely that commonality of trying to figure out as best of the, as possible what the causes are and how to deal with it. Uh, even in Europe, you know, people believe, some people believed it was the wrath of God. Uh, a group known as the uh, flagellants would walk around. This was a ultra-religious group that would whip themselves, punish themselves, uh, they would beat themselves in ritual penance, um, almost this idea that if they punished their human bodies on earth, that God would grace their souls in the afterlife, that they had been sinful and they needed to punish themselves. And oftentimes these guys would walk around with masks on because they didn't want the public to know who they were, but they would walk around and punish themselves. And there's plenty of people who believe that those individuals who were whipping themselves and drawing blood actually made themselves even more susceptible to contracting the plague as well as spreading it if they had it themselves. In Charles L. Mead Jr.'s How Mysterious Disease Laid Load Europe's Masses, Charles talks about two additional potential causes that Europeans believed were bringing about the Black Death, one of them being animals and the other ones in a much more deep-rooted anti-Semitic view amongst Europeans, Jews. He says, quote, Some people did imagine that the disease might be coming from animal, and so they killed dogs and cats, though never rats. But fleas were so much a part of everyday life that no one seemed to have given them a second thought. Upright citizens also killed gravediggers, strangers from other countries, gypsies, drunks, beggars, cripples, leopards, and Jews. 
The first persecution of the Jews seemed to have taken place in the south of France in the spring of 1348. That September, at Chilion on Lake Geneva, a group of Jews were accused of poisoning the wells. They were tortured, and they confessed, and their confessions were sent to neighboring towns. In Basel, all the Jews were locked inside wooden buildings and burnt alive. In November, Jews were burned in Solothurn, Zolfingen, and Stuttgart. Through the winter and into the early spring, they were burnt in Landsberg, Buren, Memmenzim, Lendau, Freiburg, Ulm, Sprayer, Gotha, Eichen, Dresden, Worms, Baden, and Erfurt. 16,000 were murdered at Strasbourg. In other cities, Jews were walled up inside of their houses to starve to death. That the Jews were also dying from the plague was not taken as proof that they were not the cause of it. End quote. Terrifying experience, no doubt, for those people who were blamed for the plague, but yet they're dying at the same amount as all the other Europeans that are suffering from it. Um, once again, whether it is looking at vapors, the wrath of God, potentially blaming people in society, big idea here to note is widespread ignorance. Europeans do not know what the causes are, and they're trying their best to figure out, and unfortunately, displaying the worst in trying to figure out what the causes are and what the solutions should be. By 1353, the Black Death had extended across northernmost parts of Europe, and as the living attempted to move on in Europe, almost certainly they were going to experience social and economic and even political consequences. So what exactly were these consequences? Well, let's look at it from the view of social and economical. High depopulation shrunk the labor supply. So, so many people had lost their lives because of the Black Death that there was less labor. And as a consequence of that less labor, that meant that the remaining members of the peasantry, those people who were laborers, could now dictate and tell the landlords that the landlords needed to pay them more to work on their lands. This is a, a typical supply and demand. When you had a huge amount of laborers, the landlords have the power to say, we are only selecting a certain amount of you to work our land, and you must work for pennies on the dollar, perhaps. You can keep the wages low. But when there's not a lot of workers, then there's not a lot of options for the nobility and the land owners. And so they have to kind of submit to the demands of the labor supply. So consequently, wages increased, as well as those uh, the wages of artisans increased even more. And the price of agriculture fell due to less demand. There's less demand, there's less people, less need of food. Less need of food, that meant that the price of the food would also go down. The nobility also lost money and wealth and social status in society because nobles were forced to pay more for the peasants of their and their wages. That meant that they lost money and they um, also had to pay higher wages even for finished products and artisans and their products will also increase dramatically the amount per product that they're making. The nobility did attempt in multiple occasions to try to force the laborers and the peasants back to the way labor was and wages were before the plague struck in England in 1351. English Parliament will pass the Statute of Laborers that will reduce wages to levels that were before the plague. The English peasants eventually will uh, revolt. In France, the increase of the Tal led to an uprising known as the Jacquerie. So in England and France, you did have peasant revolts as the nobility attempted to kind of 
turn the clock backwards and put the peasants under their thumb yet again. Cities also prospered as a major result of the Black Death. Cities started to pass laws to protect their uh, economic situation and their economy from competition, where it used to be that the competition was in the outside areas. Now it's, it's really within the cities as the landlords are losing power on the outside. The cities become much more important in European society at that point. Uh, the demand for luxury goods increased, but supply remained low because the Black Death also killed artisans, uh, these skilled laborers who are skilled, for example, in woodworking or some sort of smith type of job, uh, working with iron, for example. And so because artisans, there was a shortage of artisans, you also have as a major consequence a huge amount of migration from the countryside to the cities. You have peasants that are giving up the skill of being a peasant. They're tired of working in the countryside. And if the money is right and there are jobs that are available in the cities to become a smith of some sort, then they're going to be looking to get away from the countryside and go into the cities. As another two results per capita income also increased as well as the price of agricultural products declined. So in conclusion, the Black Death was an epidemic of the bubonic plague that reduced the European populations by one-third from the years 1347 to 1353. Carried by fleas on black rats, the Yersinia pestis spread from flea to man or from man to man. Europeans attempted to understand and prescribe remedies, albeit with ignorance, scapegoating Jews, killing animals that were thought to have spread the pestis, assuming geographic and seismic movements, or events of the wrath of God were responsible that led Europeans to seek refuge, isolation, personal hygiene suggestions, or even prompting the return of flagellants. At the end of 1353, Europeans underwent a great social and economic change. Shortage of laborers led to an increase of wages and power for the peasants, and a reduction of power amongst the land-owning nobility. Attempts to return power to the nobility resulted in peasant revolts. Additionally, the demand of skilled industry of artisans, as well as the artisans' own wealth, increased as a result of the Black Death.